Okay, well, before we jump into uh, the word this morning, let me make a few announcements. Um, uh, a week from today, we will have an August, our August members meeting. That'll, again, that'll be one week from today. Um, many of you know we've been talking about bylaw revisions. We've postponed that. Originally, we sent out a mailing nearly a month ago that never came, and so we had to resend it out to give folks more time for review and for asking questions. We're going to kind of postpone uh, the vote uh, for the bylaw changes. We will take that vote on September the 20th in the uh, members meeting there, so I want to invite all of you to take a look at, at those materials. If you have questions, feel free to, to reach out and um, to be in prayer about that. On August the 30th, we will also have kind of a town hall meeting to give you an opportunity to ask questions or bring up concerns. That meeting will occur in person right here in auditorium, but also through Zoom for uh, members of the church who are, who are uh, uh, wanting to participate in that. We, we want to make sure that all questions are answered and, and that um, uh, you've got an opportunity to, to bring up any concerns you have. So, um, Well, I heard the story of a little boy who had a quarter, and he was going to take that quarter and put it in the offering plate when the plate came by on Sunday morning, the pre-COVID days. And so uh, this little boy was holding on to his quarter, but it happened to be the Lord's Supper Sunday. And so those elements came passing by, and as they did, his parents said to him, son, no, 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 you're not ready for that yet. Don't take those. And he was kind of frustrated. His parents got them, people around them, I took that little wafer and that little cup, but not him. Still had that quarter in his pocket, and later in the service when the offering plate came by, he grabbed that quarter out of his pocket and he held it tied in his hand, and his mom said, hey, son, now's the time, put it in the plate. He held onto it and kind of gave her a look of resolve, and she said, now, now. And he said, look, if I'm not eating, I'm not paying. <laughs> now, this morning, we are continuing our series uh, about the church. What does the Bible say about the church? It's called a glimpse of heaven because the church is meant to be a glimpse of heaven for the watching world. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll try to answer the question, what is the church? And, I'm sorry, what is the Lord's Supper? And what difference does it make? Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a mess, one of the primary challenges the church at Corinth faced was the issue of division. There was a lot of division and disunity within the church. It was an unhealthy church. There was also problems with immorality. And so Paul is writing to the church at Corinth to address these problems. He, he's writing to, to say, hey, things have got to change in this church. You've got to address the disunity that's here. You've got to address the immorality and, and other kinds of problems that, that you're facing if you're going to be a healthy church, if you're going to be a mature church in Christ. So let's take a look at Paul's instructions regarding the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. Now, in giving this instruction... I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk? Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? 
I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters Whenever I come, what does this passage teach us about the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that leads us to draw close to Christ and to each other. This morning, I hope to help you better understand what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper, the reasons for the Lord's Supper, and how the Lord's Supper helps us in our Christian lives. We'll look at the reality that Christ commands Christians to observe the Lord's Supper, and we'll conclude by spending some time asking the Lord to search our hearts and draw us near to Him. So how do we draw closer to Christ and each other through the Lord's Supper? Well, first, we pursue unity. In verse 17, Paul tells the Corinthian church when they gather together, they're actually not gathering together for the better. They're gathering together in such a way that it harms the church. Paul speaks of well-known divisions at the church at Corinth. It was known that there was all kinds of trouble and division within that church. In verse 19, Paul said that God was actually using this division for good because it was revealing who was truly in the faith and who wasn't. For if a person is constantly causing division and constantly stirring up trouble, there's good reason to ask whether or not that person is genuinely in the Lord, if that person's genuinely saved. In verse 20, when the Christians came together, or when the Corinthians came together, they were gathering not to observe the Lord's Supper, though that's what they said they were gathering for. They were actually gathering to promote their own interests. And we see this in churches today, too. A person's a part of a church, not for spiritual growth, not to further the mission of the church, but for some personal agenda. Hey, I like this, so I'm going to be involved in a church that has this, and I want everything to go my way so that, so that I like this, and the church should do it, and if the church entertains doing anything different, well, that's not right. This is what I like. Well, Paul rebukes that kind of selfish spirit, that kind of, it's about me attitude. This is what was happening when they observed the Lord's Supper. They were making it about themselves. So in verse 21, the Corinthians were sharing this meal together as they observed the Lord's Supper. And at this meal, their me-centered attitude was on full display. Folks showed up at the church social, and they started stacking their plates high. Now, we've all been to church socials, and we know there's always one or two people who always have to be at the front of the line. No, I better stop there. But 
what's happening somehow is that the folks who have a lot of means are getting, they're getting to the front of the line. And, and they are. They're, they're piling their plates high. And then the folks who had less somehow were at the end of the line and there wasn't much left for them. And Paul says, basically, some of you are gorging yourselves and you're even getting drunk at this meal and others are going hungry. Anything honoring to God about that? That's, that's what Paul is saying to them. And so Paul challenges these believers to think about each other as they observe the Lord's Supper. In verse 22, Paul tells them, if you're going to act like this, just eat at home. Eat at home. Then he says, do you despise the church? What's Paul saying? Paul's saying the way that you're living, the way that you're behaving when you come together reveals that you don't care about the church. You care about yourself. Not the church, not the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You care about your own agenda. Paul says that you're, you're humiliating the folks in the church who have less. You don't care. So the Lord's Supper is meant to highlight the church's unity and is meant to call the church to unity. We see this underscored in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. In observing the Lord's Supper, there was one loaf of bread that was broken in many pieces. This was a picture of the church's unity. The church is composed of numerous people, very different, and yet one as a body in Christ. Now, if you've ever seen the giant redwood trees in California, you've seen quite a sight. These trees towering into the air, over 360 feet high, 35 stories into the air. Some of these trees over 20 feet in diameter. And you ask, well, how deep do the roots go? For those trees and you would imagine dozens and dozens and dozens of feet the reality is at the deepest 10 to 13 feet in fact the roots for these trees have a tendency to spread out and to intertwine with other redwood trees and that is what gives these trees their strength they they intertwine with one another and then when strong winds come when floods come they can withstand those this is a picture of the church we are not very strong when we stand alone, when we're by ourselves. But when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, committed to the Lord Jesus, committed to His Word, committed to the mission, we are strong. We're strong together. And we can face the storms that come at us. And as a church, we better recognize something. In this culture, stronger storms are ahead. You can count on that, brothers and sisters, for churches who believe this book, for churches who are committed to what the Bible says about family, for churches who are committed to what the Bible says about gender and all of these kinds of things. Dark days are ahead. Unless God does something miraculous, unless He brings that revival we're praying for, and a church must be unified. And so the, the Lord's Supper becomes something the church does together regularly that reminds them of the absolute importance of coming together, of intertwining our lives together. 
Yes, the Lord's Supper points us to the critical reality of the unity of the church. How else do we draw close to Christ and each other through the Lord's Supper? Well, second, as we observe the Lord's Supper, we focus on Jesus. In verse 23, Paul reminds these Corinthians that he's not teaching something new. He's passing on to them what the Lord Jesus himself did and taught. In fact, he goes to that upper room scene where before his death, Jesus gathers with his disciples for what is often called the Last Supper. It was an observance of the Passover meal. The Jewish people would observe the Passover to memorialize the reality that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And so Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at this time. He told his disciples in Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, do this in remembrance of me. So we call the Lord's Supper an ordinance because it is one of two ordinances that Christ commanded. The first is baptism. He gave the ordinance of baptism to the church, as Ralph talked about last week. And, and now again, as we're talking about today, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So that night when Jesus was gathered with his disciples, he took a loaf of unleavened bread, bread without any kind of yeast, and he broke it. And he began to take the pieces of that bread and to give it to, to his disciples. Now he said to them, take this bread, it is my body. Now he didn't mean that the bread was literally his body, just like in Matthew 5 when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He, he doesn't want you to take an ice pick into your eye. No, he wants you to be radical about how you deal with sin. In the same way, he's not saying that the bread is literally his body, but he's saying that the bread represents his flesh, represents his body. And the bread becomes a reminder that Jesus left the glories of heaven and he came to this earth in the flesh. Came to this earth in the flesh and he suffered and was beaten and brutally tortured in the flesh. This was real pain. This was real hurt that he experienced in his body. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, we remember. We remember that we have a God who loves us so much that he sent his own son in the flesh to face this agony on our behalf. In verse 25, Jesus says, This is the new covenant in my blood. The cup represents the, the blood of Jesus, the blood that would pour from his veins for the forgiveness of sin. Now, this reference to the new covenant reminds us of the old covenant. God had covenanted with his people Israel. He, he gave them the law and said, you obey these commands and, and follow me and, and I will be your God and, and I will bless you. Now, consider this scene when the old covenant was ratified. This is from Exodus 24, beginning in verse 6. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning these words. You see, the covenant between God and his people was a covenant that was ratified with blood. 
It required the sacrifice of animals. We call this the Mosaic Covenant or, again, the Old Covenant. So why did Jesus use this language regarding the covenant and blood? It was because His blood was going to be poured out to ratify the New Covenant. Why was Jesus' blood necessary? Why did He have to die? The reality is that every single one of us is a sinner. We're a sinner by nature. And by choice, we choose to do what we want. And in our nature, that's who we are. That's that's the reality of it. But God is completely pure. Everything in Him is pure. He is absolutely holy. And He cannot ignore sin. And that puts us in a very terrible situation. A God who's pure and a people who are terribly sinful. What is our rescue? Our rescue is that the Lord Jesus came in the flesh, that he shed his blood. That's our rescue. What is the response of a holy God towards sin? The Bible tells us plainly, it's judgment. He has to judge sin. To do any other is to compromise his very character, to compromise his nature. So when Jesus shed his blood, he took the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve upon himself. We call this substitutionary atonement. And what we mean is that Jesus was our substitute. He, when he shed his blood, paid the price that we owed God for our sin. He he paid that himself. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the shed blood of Jesus on the cross means that sinful people like you and me can be made right with a God who is holy. So when you turn away from your sin and you place your faith in Jesus, God does something incredible. He takes all of the filth and the sin in your heart and he washes it away and he takes the perfect life that Jesus lived and he gives it to you. And now you and me can be in right standing with the God who's holy, not because we're good, but because Jesus is perfect, because he is good. In verse 26, Paul reminds the members of the Corinthian church that in observing the Lord's Supper, they're proclaiming Jesus' death. They're proclaiming the gospel until he returns. So the Lord's Supper is also a reminder that Jesus will return one day. It's a glorious reminder that he is coming again. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're not just remembering what he did on the cross, but we're also remembering that he is coming back that he will return. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation 19.9 that at the end of time, we will observe another meal together. And this meal is called the marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19.9. And it is going to be a glorious time. All sin will be gone. God will, will bring an end to all that's broken and messed up and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. And at this meal, there'll be an amazing celebration. So the Lord's Supper gives us a glimpse of heaven. It's a reminder of the glorious meal that is ahead. Oh, what an incredible reality. When my oldest daughter, Kate, was just a toddler, she loved to look at pictures on the iPad. Always, you know, if a kid wants to do something once they want to do it like a thousand times so you just got to keep looking at these pictures but she would try to reach into the pictures and get something out and we would have to say to her honey these pictures just show something you can't reach into 
there and get anything. And finally, she began to grasp that. And the Lord's Supper is like that. The Lord's Supper points us to a greater reality, the greatest reality of all. The Lord's Supper reminds us of all that Jesus has done and of the reality that one day He will return. It it reminds us of that. It points to that. It symbolizes that reality, the greatest reality of all. So the Lord's Supper calls us to unity. The Lord's Supper calls us to focus on Jesus and to, to draw close to Him and each other. The Lord's Supper calls us to examine ourselves. You see, Jesus' death was a sacrifice of self for the good of others. So I'm giving up my life, Jesus says, for the good of those who will believe. In this way, Jesus' example underscores a critical aspect of unity within the church. Every believer must sacrifice personal desire and preference for the good of others. That's a reality. Now remember, when these believers were gathering together, they weren't doing that. What were they doing? Well, they were piling their plates high, making sure they got plenty of good food. And so the very act that was occurring was a denial of what they were claiming to observe. They were claiming to observe the death, the sacrifice of Jesus. He was giving his life for the good of others. Do you see how duplicitous the people were being? And yet, don't we see that in our own lives so frequently? We claim to love Jesus and then we're mean and hateful to our family. We claim to love Jesus and then we're dishonest. I mean, there's just there's so many ways that we, we see our need for God's grace. Well, these folks were, were there. They, they needed God's grace desperately, just like us. And so, this is a call to, to examine ourselves. In verse 27, Paul warns these Christians that taking the Lord's Supper with the wrong heart. Now, again, remember, they were promoting their own desires, not the good of the, the body made them guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. So in other words, to take the Lord's Supper without a right heart was to sin against his body, his people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but it was also a sin against Jesus himself. In verse 28, Paul commands a time of self-examination. Church members should ask the Lord to search our hearts as we take the Lord's Supper. Most of us are probably going to need to ask for forgiveness for some things. We're going to need to sort of recalibrate in our our relationship with Christ. Perhaps we too have been guilty of causing division within the church family, like like these believers or any other numbers of sin that, that we need to repent of. There must be a sincere desire to take these elements with a heart that loves God and is pleasing to Him. In verse 29, Paul again emphasizes unity within the church. He says we must recognize the body of Christ. In other words, our church family as we observe the Lord's Supper. To take the Lord's Supper without a regard for our brothers and sisters in Christ and without striving to honor God. Well, Paul says it's asking for judgment. Look in verse 31, or verse 30, pardon me. Paul says that some of you are sick for this reason. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that some of you are literally sick because you've come to the Lord's Supper with a half heart. Because you've come to the Lord's Supper with your own desires. Not the good of the body, not a desire to please Christ, but a desire to please yourself. And he says you're sick for that reason. What does that mean? That means that God has brought discipline into their lives. And the particular discipline in this scenario was poor physical health. 
And look at what Paul says. Some of you have fallen asleep. Some had so disregarded the Lord's Supper and so refused to walk in obedience to the Word of God in this way that God took them home. They were His children. They refused to repent. And ultimately, He brought them into the judgment uh, of death. We, as believers, should not play games with God. Hebrews 12 reminds us that He will discipline His own who play games with Him. And that applies to me, and it applies to each one of you who know Him. And Paul says that's exactly what's happened in your fellowship. Boy, this is serious stuff. We have no reason to believe that God will operate any differently today. In verse 31, Paul says, if believers will properly judge their own hearts and have a tender heart toward God, a heart that's humble and longs to please Him and longs to to serve and bless our brothers and sisters in Christ, we won't face the discipline that's spoken of in this passage. So Paul reminds these Corinthians that the discipline that God brought wasn't meant to punish them or to harm them. The discipline that God brought into their lives was redemptive discipline. It was meant to bring them back to Him. It was meant to to help them turn from their sin and to run to Him. That's what God was doing. It wasn't for their harm. It was for their good. In verse 33, he urges these Christians to show hospitality and and kindness to one another. And he underscores this again. If you're hungry, then eat before you come so you won't be tempted to be greedy. So we see the importance, once again, of unity within the church family. With school just beginning, sometimes students are asked to take placement tests. And placement tests don't go toward a student's grade or GPA. They help teachers, they help parents, they help children understand where the student's at. What are the child's deficiencies? What are the strengths? What kind of placement would would be helpful for this student? Now, again, placement tests don't count toward grades or GPA. And in this way, the Lord's Supper is sort of like a placement test. We don't observe the Lord's Supper so that we can make a good grade with God. Actually, we observe the Lord's Supper so that we can contemplate where we're at with God so that we can call out to him and say, God, soften my heart. Show me what it is in my life that needs to change. What are the spiritual deficiencies in my life? Where are the areas where my life is, is not, it's, it's messed up, God, where, where you need to make change? Help me to see. That's what the Lord's Supper does. It calls us to, to, to reflect, personal reflection, and to ask the Lord to, to search our hearts. So we examine hearts, our hearts, before we observe the Lord's Supper. Let's think about what this looked like, more particularly in our lives and in the lives uh, or the life of our church. The Lord's Supper shows us that every Christian is meant to be a member of a local church. Who is given responsibility in this passage for administering the Lord's Supper? It's the church. It's not something that I I gather my family together in the living room and say, okay, kids, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. It's not like that. This is something that happens in the context of a church family gathering together. Uh, The fact that it means the unity of the church reminds us of that as well. How can it be a picture of unity when I'm uh, on a camping trip and say to my family, let's take the Lord's Supper? That makes no sense. Lord's Supper is about the body gathering, about the unity of the body. So in many ways, the ordinances, the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're markers of membership. 
When a person's baptized, they are baptized into Christ and into a local church as we see in Acts 2.41. And that marks their entrance into a church family. Well, then the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is meant to indicate that a, a Christian is a member in good standing of a church. So that as you observe the Lord's Supper, that's an affirmation by the church family that you are a believer and that you're a member in good standing. If a person is under church discipline, they're not to take the Lord's Supper. That's what, that's what we see in the scriptures. So the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, remind us of how critical it is that we're a part of a church family. In verse 33, Paul urges these Christians to, to show um, this kind of hospitality to one another. And uh, it reminds us that the church family, as, as a, a body, um, is meant to care for each other and, and to love each other. Uh, can you be a Christian without being a church member? I, I guess you can. In the same way that you could be a soldier without being a part of an army, or you could be a volleyball player without being a part of a volleyball team, or a teacher without students, or a doctor without patients. I mean, you can be a Christian without belonging to the church. It just doesn't make any sense to follow Jesus but to reject his family. And it's unfaithful to the word. Next, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we must guard the unity of the church. We must strive to have humble hearts that put others ahead of ourselves. We must lay aside personal preferences for the good of the body, for the furtherance of the mission. We work toward maintaining unity in one way by holding fast to the Word of God. When we gather around the core truths of God's Word, that holds us together. We're unified around those truths. So we must have a firm commitment to the Word of God. That's what our unity is built on. We work toward unity by being careful with our attitudes. Selfishness and pride destroy unity. On the other hand, humility and sacrifice promote unity. So we work toward unity by being careful with our speech. When we have concerns, we go directly to someone, as Scripture indicates, instead of going to everyone else and talking about someone. We're careful not to talk poorly of others. We're careful not to gossip. Instead, we, we pray. We seek, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to speak the truth in love. Uh, we, we look for ways to do that. We encourage. We lift others up. These are ways that we build the unity of the body. Unity is difficult work because it rubs against the grain of our sinful human nature. I like to be first. And my guess is most of you do too. I like, to, I like to, to, to have my way, and most of you probably do too. Our sinful nature causes us to want our own way. We want to share ugly things about others. We don't want to guard our tongues. What fun is that? However, walking in the flesh will always lead to disunity and trouble in a church family. And walking in the Spirit will lead to peace and harmony among brothers and sisters in Christ. When you look at the opera house here in town, it's interesting to think that that building's been standing for well over a hundred years. When you see a, a building like that, you recognize that someone had to lay a foundation and then brick by brick, hammer blow by hammer blow, had to put that building together. It didn't just happen. In the same way, the unity of the church doesn't just happen. 
It's an achievement. We have to work at it. We have to be intentional. It takes each of us striving to build deeper relationships with one another, investing the time and energy that that takes. It takes us being careful to to deal with the points of division, to to, to work through those kinds of things, not to ignore them, but, but to work through them. Yes, it takes effort to maintain the unity of the church, but it is critical for no church can claim to be a faithful church that is divided and disunified. What change do you need to make to guard the unity of our faith family? Do you need to try to put others ahead of yourselves? Do you need to be less critical and pray more? Do you need to quit demanding your way, your personal preferences? Do you need to work on the love part of speak the truth in love? Do you need to ask the Lord to help you walk in humility, not arrogance? Do you need to approach a fellow brother or sister in Christ and get things right? Whatever step God is calling you to take, I urge you to take that step. We must pursue the church's unity to be a healthy church. Next, the Lord's Supper reminds us how critical it is to center our lives around Jesus. How do we do this? Well, we read the Bible daily. We pray daily. We gather together for worship regularly. We we get in a small group where we can learn the word and spur one another on and, and hold each other accountable. In other words, we want to center our life around Him and knowing Him. As a Christian, have you allowed sin or busyness or something else to come between you and your love for Jesus? Has your love for the Lord sort of faded, sort of grown cold? Well, this morning, brothers and sisters, as we observe the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity to say, God, I need a reset. I need a reset. Help me to to have a new love for you, a fresh love for you. It's been said that the Lord's Supper is like a spiritual cleanser to flush out or to clean out all the spiritual junk in our system. And that's what we want to do this morning. We want to ask the Lord to flush out the junk, the spiritual stuff that's, that's kind of gathered in our hearts. We want to ask Him to cleanse us and to give us a, a new love. So ask the Lord to, to speak to you as, as we observe. And if you're listening today and you don't know Jesus personally, I plead with you. Hear the truths that we've talked about from the Word of God. You can be saved. How do you do that? You say to God, I'm sick of going my own way. I'm sick of sinning. I'm turning away from that life, and I believe in you. I'm putting my faith in you. I believe that you died on the cross, that you were buried, and that you came back to life, and I'm putting my life in your hands, God. And when you call out to God like that, friend, you will be saved. And not only that, you can know that one day you're going to be at that wonderful feast that is ahead. You're going to be a part of that glorious heavenly feast. So friend, if you've never trusted, I plead with you today, turn to the Lord Jesus in faith. Next, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we have a true hope. In this broken world, we see so much heartache. We experience so much sadness you know what the Lord's Supper reminds us? That Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back to life. What does that mean in our lives? It means that this brokenness, this pain, this heartache that we experience now is not the end of the story. If you are in Christ, there is wonderful glory ahead. So be encouraged. 
Maybe you're on the verge of losing heart. Friend, be encouraged. Take hope. There is a wonderful, unimaginable future ahead for all who know Jesus. Oh, may your heart be encouraged. Yes, we have an enduring hope. If a football team is unified, it doesn't mean that every player has the same position. It means that everybody is playing uh, their part for the same goal. And if an orchestra has beautiful harmony, it doesn't mean that every member of that orchestra is playing the same instrument. Instead, it means that each member of that orchestra is playing their part to produce that beautiful song. It's the goal, in a sense, that produces unity. Well, what's the goal of a church? The goal of a church is to glorify God and to make His name known that others might glorify Him. So each of us, though very different, but committed to making Jesus known, committed to the glory of God, committed to leading people, as our mission statement says, to believe in Jesus, to become a part of His family, and to become like Jesus. Oh, think of how God can use us when we draw near to each other for those purposes. When we maintain our unity and our harmony as a church family, could hundreds here be saved? Maybe even thousands? That could happen. Could our community be transformed? Could, could these realities reverberate around the globe? Could God use this group committed to his mission and unified together to bring people to Jesus on the other side of this planet? The answer is yes, yes, yes. So brothers and sisters, let's draw close to Jesus. Let's draw near to one another. The Lord's Supper was commanded by Jesus to lead us to draw near to him and to one another. If you're a Christian, what change do you need to make? In just a moment, we're gonna take some time for silent reflection. This is the time that each one of us needs to call out to him and say, Lord, show me where, what needs to change. Lord, speak to my heart. Give me the grace to take that step. And if you're here today listening and you've never turned to Christ again, I wanna, I wanna tell you, Today, if you'll turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, you can be saved. If you would like to, to, to visit with us more about this, we'll be around after the service. We would love to visit with you. If you're watching online, you can text the word Jesus to our church phone number, and we will be in contact soon. You don't need to talk with one, with one of us to be saved, but we would love to walk with you as you, take that, as you take that journey. We would love to answer questions that you have. If you've never been saved, I'll call out to him today. Friends, let's pray. Take these, these moments of silence and ask the Lord to search your heart.